This morning, I'd like to start off with a quote by a gentleman who has made a huge impact in my life through the books that he has written. His name is Andrew Murray. He's written a wide variety of books, um, more than I could ever hope to read. That's for sure. I'm not much of a reader. But in one of the books that I have read of his, it's, it's titled Humility. And in the preface, he makes this quote that has actually uh, held a lot of weight in my life. And it says this. The faithful servant who recognizes his position finds a real pleasure in supplying the wants of the master or his guests. When we see that humility is something infinitely deeper than contrition and accept it as our participation in the life of Jesus, we shall begin to learn that it is our true nobility and that to prove it in being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as men created in the image of God. Again, that's Andrew Murray in his book, Humility. I'd like to start this morning and ask you a few questions. And the purpose of asking you these questions is to also ask you to let this stir in your hearts as we study the word this morning, that you might wrestle with it, that you might engage with these questions and determine its effect on your life. I ask you this, would you be willing to remove yourself from your rights in order to make way for God's will? Would you be willing to take hold of humility in order for God's will, another's blessing, and your own deprivation to occur? Simply put, is the need or desire for your kingdom too big or in the way of God's kingdom? A lot of times uh, growing up in the church, if you're anything like me, You'll hear certain phrases that kind of come up again and again and again. Uh, if you've grown up in a church like me, you understand that we have a language all to our own. We've titled it Christianese. And uh, I believe Rosetta Stone is working on that right now. But we have this language with inside the church and we use these common phrases all the time. Uh, perhaps you've heard some of them. Uh, these are a few of my favorites. Maybe you've heard this one. God has a plan for your life. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Here's another one of my favorites. When God closes a door, he opens a window. I think that's what happened at Pentecost. Someone shut the door and then opened the window and the Holy Spirit just came right in. Or one of my all-time favorites, this last one right here. All things work together for good. Isn't that a nice twisting of scripture right there? Just makes you feel warm and fuzzy and all good inside. And, and I think we tend to use these phrases all the time. But what if God's will and the working of his good came at your expense? What if God's will and his good cost you something? Would it be as desirable? Would it be such a common and cliche phrase within our circles? Are you content in simply seeing and knowing that God's greatness and his fame are made known? Or do you set conditions or amendments to his will and plans in your life? I think a lot of times we go through life and we're willing to come to church on the weekends or, or midweek or be involved in Bible studies and we'll be able to stand here in church and comfortably say, yes, God, my life is completely yours. Father, I want to live a life of worship. God, I'm, I'm all in. I'm sold out for you. 
And we say those things, but when it actually comes time to follow through with it, when it, when it comes time to where the rubber meets the road and our actions have to then back up what we've said, a different story comes to life. Something different happens. I think more often than not, when we really look at it, it can sometimes sound like this. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as long as I get a good seat. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as long as it doesn't hurt too bad. Or as long as I don't have to give up this or that or go over here or go over there. And so on and so on and so on. And we set these conditions and these amendments to God's will and its effect and its action in and around our lives. What would it look like if we realized that in the story that God has written, we play supporting roles and it is Christ who is the one lead role. If ours is a supporting role and it is Christ who contains the lead, then by that very nature, no one of our roles may be considered any better than another. They all exist that Christ might be highlighted and glorified regardless of the world's order. When we claim Christ and accept him in our lives, we have to understand that we are now under a new system. One in which Christ is first, others must come before ourselves regardless of everything else we have known or what the world would like to tell us or convince us is true. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Humility is miracle grow for our relationship with Christ. Now as you write that, you're probably asking yourself, wow, is this this guy's first fill in the blank? Yes, it is. Surprisingly, fill in the blanks are a lot harder than they look. And I figure if we can work the word miracle grow into a fill in the blank, we're on the right track. I've reached out to them to see if they would sponsor me. No word back yet. I will keep you posted. Once again, the fill in the blank. Humility is miracle grow for our relationship with Christ. If you're going to be following along with us this morning, you are going to need a Bible. If you don't have one or didn't uh, come with one this morning, go ahead and throw a hand in the air. We've got some people that are going to hand out some Bibles to you. We are going to be speaking and, and working through 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're receiving one of the Bibles that we are handing out to you, it's page 206. Page 206. If you don't have one of the Bibles we are handing out and you brought your own, Good luck to you. First uh, Samuel comes before Second Samuel, and there's your hint. I always give the junior hires hints, so I figure why not stop. First Samuel chapter 20, page 206, and the Bible's being handed out. Before we go into our scripture this morning, it's important that we kind of recap what's been going on so far in our Life of Worship series. We've been studying this book, 1 Samuel, and tracking along with the lives of David and Saul. And we're going through and we're tracking with them in figuring out what a life of worship actually looks like and what it would mean for us. We started out a few weeks ago with David coming into the picture in a big way. We had this large, overgrown Philistine man, nine feet, nine inches tall. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is Goliath. And uh, David goes out onto the battlefield bringing his brother's supplies. And as he goes out there, he finds this mammoth of a Philistine insulting the Israelites 
and their God. And David says, I will not tolerate that. So he goes over to a riverbed, picks up a few stones, puts one in a sling, slings it at Goliath, hits him right in the head. Goliath tumbles down in what I can only imagine was a huge thud. And then David walks over and in the part that I love, uses Goliath's sword to chop off his head. I think that was fantastic. And then after that, David goes into the service of Saul. He becomes someone who sits next to Saul. Whenever the spirit of the Lord comes and torments Saul, David begins to play the harp as a way to soothe that for Saul. He begins playing the harp, and that's kind of how he starts out in service to Saul. And then he moves on from there and becomes an armor bearer and then works his way up the ranks in Saul's army and becomes a very well-respected and admired military leader. So much so that if you remember last week, we were studying as Saul and David and the Israelite army were coming into town. The women came out with their flutes and their lyres and their tambourines and they began to sing a song and they began singing about David and about Saul. And they started out. And if you remember the chorus, it sounded like this. Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul's sitting there and he says, why, yes, I have. Thank you. And then the chorus continues. And they say, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden that doesn't sit so well with Saul. And he hears that and that anger and that jealousy and that rage begin to bubble up and overflow from his heart and his life. He gets so angry about David and the admiration that the Israelite people have for him that he decides David's got to go. So on a few occasions, Saul grabs his spear and he hurls it at David. David escapes those situations, makes it out okay, but Saul's not quite done yet. No, he actually sends men to camp out in front of David's house to kill him in the morning. Well, David's wife finds out about it. She happens to be Saul's daughter and she tells David, she says, you've got to get out of here. Go through the window. I'm going to let you go. Just run. So David does just that. He sneaks out the window and runs to this place known as Navath Ramah. So he is hiding out there. When Saul's men come into the house to kill David, all they find is a statue with some goat's hair on it and probably a need to get some glasses. So they go in there, they find that. And when Saul confronts his daughter, he says, why would you trick me like that? And she figures, well, David's not here, so he seems like a good excuse. And she blames him. And that is kind of where we pick up our story this morning. At the very end of the chapter before, we see Saul's men being sent by Saul out to go hunt David down in the city that he's hiding in. He sends one dispatchment, and they get stopped by the Lord and end up prophesying. Saul's not too happy about that, so he sends a second dispatchment. They, too, get stopped in the same area and begin to prophesy. Not being one to learn a lesson quickly, Saul sends out a third dispatchment. They, too, find the same fate and begin to prophesy. Finally, Saul says, you know what? If you want something done, you've got to do it yourself. So he heads out that way to go kill David himself, gets to the same spot as the men, and begins to prophesy. Except he ended up tearing his robes off and doing it. And that's why at the very end of the chapter, it says the people looked at Saul and asked themselves, is Saul a prophet? And now we pick up our story with David on the run. First Samuel chapter 20 says this. Then David fled from Navath at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never. Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. 
But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this passage, as we dive into your word, God, I ask that the scripture would jump off the page, that it would come alive for us. God, that you would give us new depth of insight and information. God, that we would not walk back through those doors without being changed or affected by your words. God, that our hearts would be humbled at who you are and how you've used us. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen. So here we are, back into verse 1, and it says this, Then David fled from Navaz at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. Brief recap for you. Here's David. He's just been let through a window in his house. He's in his jammies and he goes running for his life from the city in which he lives to a city where he really doesn't know anyone. He goes without food, water or supplies and he just heads down that way knowing that it is his life that he needs to spare. So he crawls out the window and in his footy pajamas goes running all the way out to Navath at Ramah. He gets there and he's hiding out. He knows no one. He doesn't know the area. He's hiding there. He doesn't want anyone to really know he's there. So he's hiding in some obscure part of the town and he stays there for a few days. Eventually Saul's men come after him. David finds out about it, but he also finds out they've been distracted by God. And then he hears that Saul has come to town. So David begins to run to a very unlikely place. He goes back to the source of the problem, the fortress at Gibeah, where his best friend is, as he begins to look for answers. So David again runs. He's still in his jammies, and he runs all the way back to the fortress at Gibeah. He's now covered in dirt from head to toe. His beard has started to grow out. He hasn't had anything to eat. The bags under his eyes are huge. He is tired, and he is confused, not really knowing what's going on. Finally, he gets to the fortress at Gibeah, runs up to Jonathan, and asks him, What have I done? Why is your father coming after me that he is looking to take my life? Here's what's important to note here. That word life that David used is critical because that word in Hebrew can also mean life, soul, or entire being. What David is describing here is that he is no longer just a random person or a nuisance to Saul. Instead, Saul is entirely focused on him. That's the only thing that Saul cares about doing at this point. It's kind of like this. I've played soccer for a long time in my life. I play on Friday nights in a co-ed league. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to help coach a couple of teams, one of which was an all-girls soccer team, a U16 team that was select. I absolutely loved doing it. But through that process, I learned something very valuable. Boys soccer and girls soccer are two very different things. Boys soccer typically works like this. You have two guys, they're on opposing teams, and they're on the field together. All of, a sudden, all of a sudden, the ball will shoot by them. The two guys will go running after it. It'll be a 50-50 ball. They're now shoulder to shoulder. All of a sudden, their legs get tangled up. One guy goes down. 
The whistle blows, play stops. The guy on the ground gets up, dusts himself off and begins to walk away like, I meant to fall down. He didn't get me. I'd never let him get me. And he's ready to play again. Girl soccer, completely different. Looks like this. Two girls are standing on the field. They're on opposing teams. The ball shoots by them. Both girls go for it. They're shoulder to shoulder, 50-50 ball. All of a sudden, their legs get tangled up. One girl goes down and falls to the ground. As the girl on the ground begins to get up, she is all of a sudden surrounded by her team members. They help her up and they begin to dust her off. And as she gets up, they begin to form a huddle off to the side. Now, before this morning, you had no idea what was said in that huddle. I'm about to tell you what was said in that huddle. It usually looks a little something like this. Oh, my gosh, Trinice, did you see that girl? She totally just shoved you to the ground on purpose. I know, right? How could she do that to me? You know what? We're going to have to do something about this. Oh, absolutely right. We are. And as a team, ladies, we are all in it. Okay. And as a cord, they put their hands in and you hear a huzzah at the end. And now these girls are determined to get the one girl that caused this whole problem in the first place. The poor little girl with the number 13 on her back now has a death warrant on her head. And these girls over here will not stop at anything until vengeance has occurred. Poor little number 13 is going to be ducking and dodging the whole rest of the team. From here on out, the ball doesn't matter. The score doesn't matter. The fact that they're playing soccer is irrelevant to them anymore. It is now about poor little number 13. And it's the same thing with Saul and David. Saul is now looking at David. He might as well be a little girl with a number 13 on his back. And Saul is going directly after him. As far as Saul is concerned, the kingdom doesn't matter anymore. His, his duties don't matter anymore. The country doesn't matter anymore. God doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is that David is a problem and he must be taken care of at all costs. And Saul has this tunnel vision and he is now focused like a laser on David's demise. And David picks up on this and he goes to his best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be the son of the man trying to kill him. And he says, what have I done that your father would come after me to try and take my life in this way? Jonathan replies immediately. And he says, never. Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. When Jonathan stops David right away and he uses that word never, it's important that we understand. We have to go back a few chapters, back to chapter 14, verse 45. When Jonathan was away while his father, Saul, had a brilliant idea. And he looked at his army and he said, guess what, guys? Until what I desire is accomplished, nobody eats. And he looks at his army and he says that to them. And he says, if anyone eats... You die. And his army's like, good one, dude. Sadly, Jonathan was away for that little announcement. He happened to be on the road killing some Philistines. And so Jonathan was out. He killed the Philistines, came back because like Jonathan, I, I imagine that killing some Philistines would work up a huge appetite. Uh, he comes back, finds some honey on the ground, dips his staff into it and eats it. 
And when Saul finds out about it, he says, guess what? Now you're going to die. I don't care that you're my son. I said something. My pride's too important. It must be upheld. You're going to die. And as soon as he said that, Jonathan's men stand in between Saul and Jonathan and they say, never. What Jonathan has done here was important. It was for God and it was necessary. We're not going to let you touch him. And they stand in front as a protective measure of Jonathan. When I first read this, I was reminded of the passion and the emphasis that Peter spoke to Jesus about when they were together. And Jesus said, it's about time that I go. It's time that my life be laid on the line for everyone. The time's coming where I'm going to be called to die. And when Peter hears this, he responds immediately, never, Lord. I will follow you even into death. Now, we know how Jesus replies to that, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. But the important thing to note here is the passion and the emphasis that these men place behind this. Jonathan truly believes that his father would not want to harm David in this way, as David is saying he would. Now, all of us who know this story are like, Jonathan, what's the deal? You're not too quick on the uptake, are you? Because clearly Saul, your dad, has thrown multiple spears at David. He has hunted him down to another city. I'm pretty sure he wants him dead, and David knows what he's talking about here. But here's the thing. When Jonathan says, my dad doesn't do anything great or small without first consulting me, this is what he's thinking in his head. If you go back to chapter 19, just one chapter before, in verse 6, it says this. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. This is a huge deal. This is a ginormous deal. Here's why. You see, today, we don't really place a lot of weight on something that we probably should, culturally speaking. See, in America and in our modern day culture, we use phrases like, Oh my God, on a pretty regular basis, in taking God's name in vain. In fact, it's become so popular that Usher's got a song titled that. It's an acronym on Facebook that shows up everywhere, OMG. It's popular. It's said a lot. And it's not taken very seriously when people say things like, oh my God. In fact, some of us may even have this issue within our own homes where we're looking at our kids or something like that. And we're like, I swear to God, Billy, if you don't stop that right now. Or I swear to God, Jill, if you don't start doing this. And we use this phrase over and over again without really thinking about the weight that it holds. When I was growing up as a kid, um, my dad taught us that there were certain things that just weren't said in our home. There was a wide variety of words that were clearly off the table. Um, as I grew up, I had a friend when I was in sixth grade, and he used uh, that, that phrase, oh my God, quite excessively in just about every situation. And I, I looked up to him, sadly, at the time, and as I was growing up, I was looking at him and his influence in my life, and eventually I came to this conclusion, you know, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I think it's because I was too young to say it back in the day. Now that I am mature and 11, I believe I'm ready to use that phrase. So I remember I was sitting uh, on my couch in my house one afternoon, and I decided to try it in my own house one time. I was sitting on the couch. My dad had repeatedly asked me if I was going to mow the lawn like he had asked prior to that Saturday. And finally, I had had enough of him asking because he had come to me and said, son, you're going to mow the lawn right now. I said, 
I got up off the couch and I said, fine, dad. God. My father, who is a wonderful man, by the way, my father came from kitchen to here so fast. And he put his hands on my shoulders and he said to me, we do not take the Lord's name in vain in this house. That was the last time I ever did something like that. And to be honest with you, I still cringe whenever I hear God's name being taken in vain because of what my dad taught me. Jonathan is in the same position here. He's looking at his father, the man who raised him, the man who brought him up and taught him what palace life is all about, that taught him who God was, the God who rescued his people from Egypt, that led his people through the desert, that gave his people the promised land. This is the God who set this family, that set Saul on a throne over God's chosen people. That's who God is, and that's who Saul taught Jonathan who God was. So when Saul looked at Jonathan and said, I swear this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not harm David, that meant something to Jonathan. That was a huge deal to him. So when David comes to him and he says, what have I done that your father would seek my life in this way? Clearly, Jonathan has no other response than to look back at David and say, he wouldn't do that. My dad doesn't do anything great or small unless he first talks to me. In other words, my dad swore an oath to me that he wouldn't do this. But David continues in verse three, but David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. David's saying here, listen, one wrong move and I'm a goner. If your dad finds out I'm here with you right now, I promise you I'm going to die. Verse four, Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that, is, that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? So picture this. David, tired, covered in dirt. The same clothes he left his house in comes up to Jonathan, asks him why his dad is coming after him. Jonathan insists that it isn't true. And David swears an oath and says, no, I promise I know what I'm talking about. And Jonathan replies, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And the plan begins to unveil. David says, listen, tell your dad at the feast that I'm supposed to go to with him, if he asks, Tell him I had to go back to my hometown. My brothers wanted me there and we had to make a sacrifice together for my whole clan. And it was very important to them that I was there. And he begins to unveil this plan to Jonathan. But at the very end, he says something very important. He says, but if you tell your dad where I am and he gets angry, 
and you find out that it was me that did something and I did wrong, I want you to kill me. If I deserve to die, I want you to be the one to do it. Why let hand me over to your dad? And I could just picture David standing there, tired, confused, out of options, not even remembering if it's possible that he did something wrong enough to deserve death. And as he looks at Jonathan and it occurs to him that, hey, maybe I did do something. Maybe I did offend the king some way. He begins to pull out his sword. He says, listen, if I did something wrong, you might as well kill me yourself. I'd rather die by your hand. And as he pulls out his sword, I can picture Jonathan as verse 9 happens. And Jonathan said, never, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And I picture David as he's drawing his sword out to hand to Jonathan to do it himself if it's necessary. I picture Jonathan placing a hand over David's and pushing his sword back into his sheath, saying, never, if I had the least inkling that you had done something, wouldn't I tell you? Wouldn't I be there for you? And it occurs to David, and David asks, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Big question here. Who else can we trust? Who else can I go to? If your dad answers you harshly, who's going to tell me? Will you? Are you going to side with him or are you going to side with me? Verse 11, come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. We stop here for a second. Jonathan and David go out into a field to gain some privacy and some secrecy. Because they can't trust anyone else. And they're there in this field together and they concoct a serious plan that's covering all the bases. And they step through this plan together. But at the very end, Jonathan does something that changes everything. And it's in what he says. Verse 13, Jonathan says to David, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Essentially, what Jonathan is saying here is, listen, may God who rested himself on my dad now rest on you. May the God who gave my dad everything that he has now give that over to you. Even though I'm supposed to be next in line, even though I have a right to the throne, even though this kingdom, this palace, this nation, all the responsibilities and the privileges that go along with it are supposed to be mine and they are my birthright. I ask that God would give that to you. That is huge. Jonathan, a prince, gives to David a lowly shepherd from a nobody family, everything.
verse 14, Jonathan continues and he says this, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. That's key because what that actually translates to is this, the greatest possible loyalty. Jonathan is asking David for the greatest possible loyalty. Here's what that means for them. When I hear the term, the greatest possible loyalty, in essence, the loyalty of God, I am reminded of the loyalty God has shown to his chosen people in spite of their disloyalty and disobedience. God has remained faithful to his people and Jonathan is asking David to essentially remain loyal to him in the same manner and with the same commitment that God has to the Israelites. His recognition of his father's disloyalty and his mistakes and unfairness towards David taken into account. He desires David not to take or hold his father's actions against him, essentially saying, listen, as God was loyal to our people in Egypt and brought us out of slavery, as God was loyal to us in leading us through the desert, despite the fact that we made a golden calf to worship, God was still loyal to us. And just like when God brought us into the promised land and he gave us instructions and we didn't follow him. And he was still loyal to us. And just like when God was giving us spiritual leaders for our country and we turned to God and said, no, God, we don't want you or them. We want a king. And God was still loyal to us. David, that's how I want you to be loyal to me and our family. That's the loyalty that I'm asking you for. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Essentially, Jonathan asked David to repeat that covenant back to him from his side to Jonathan. And I can just imagine David saying something like this. May the Lord be with me as he has been with your father. But I will show you unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as you live so that you may not be killed, and I will never, ever cut off my kindness from your family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of my enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan understands that when he said, may the Lord cut off every enemy of yours from the face of the earth, he knew he was talking about his own father. Jonathan knew that when he said, God, protect David, and destroy his enemies. Jonathan knew that meant his dad. And he did not take that lightly. And Jonathan and David enter into a very, very important covenant. David came simply hoping for answers. He was tired and confused, looking to his best friend for his last option. And what he got was a covenant to receive everything that was rightfully Jonathan's. Here's what this means for us. As believers, what are we holding on to as rightfully ours? What in our lives do we hold on to as so important, so necessary, or so deserved to us that we wouldn't willingly set it aside for the sake of our God's glory? There's a show that I often watch um, called Friends, and in that show there's a character named Joey, and in one episode that I absolutely love, Joey's on a blind date, and uh, he's sitting across from this girl, he orders a huge plate of spaghetti and meatballs and a side of fries. I love that because I've done the very same thing, and so I understand. My love affair with french fries goes very deep. As Joey is eating his pasta, the girl looks over, now she, all she ordered was a little side salad. She looks over, she's like, 
wow, those fries look really good. And he's like, yeah, I love fries. And she reaches out and grabs a few of his French fries. And Joey just looks at her like she has lost her mind. And throughout this episode, the reoccurring theme is Joey doesn't share food. And he keeps repeating that. He ends up going on a second date with her and he figures out that if he orders two plates of fries, then everyone can be happy. So he orders the two plates of fries. She ends up going after his stuffed mushrooms. Things don't work out between the two of them. The point is this, and as funny as that sounds, I do understand where Joey is coming from. Whenever I make French fries, I have to make what I want and a little extra for my wife just to keep the peace in the house because I don't like sharing French fries. That's something that I'm working on. Not there yet. But how many of us walk through life saying, God, you can have it all. God, you can have my whole life and everything in me. Don't touch my fries. God, I live a life of worship and it's all for you. Hands off the fries. And God's standing there and he's looking at our lives and he sees that plate of French fries and he begins to reach out to take hold of the French fries we're holding off to the side. And we're like, don't do that. And he goes and he reaches for him again and we slide him to the other side. And he reaches again and now we stick a napkin on top and hoping he will get it. God removes the napkin and as he's going for the fries, we slap his hand away. Don't touch my fries. God is constantly asking for all of us and we are constantly moving and shuffling our French fries around because it's too important to us, because we deserve it. We have a right to it. It's ours. All the time, in spite of how we claim that we are all yours, God. And as much as we say, yeah, I live a life of worship, we constantly hold on to things that we feel we deserve or have a right to. I had a conversation with a gentleman in our church, one of our church leaders recently, and I began uh, to talk as our conversation turned to the subject of humility. I said, you know, I'm surprised at how much pride has infiltrated into my own home. It's kind of coming a shock to me because my pride disguises itself as wit and humor that happens to be very cutting as it concerns my wife. To give you an example, early on in our marriage, not that we've been married for a very long time, but early on for me, my wife came home and I cleaned up the entire house as, as kind of a, a thanks to her and a gift to her. So I cleaned up the whole house and she came in and she looks around and she says, wow, you cleaned up the whole house. It looks amazing in here. I said, well, you know, just a little thing. And she goes upstairs to go to the bathroom. And after she comes out, she says, um, babe, why is there a pot scrubber next to the toilet and i said what are you talking about darling and she says well hold on and she goes to the bathroom and she returns with this very small um bristly pot scrubber i guess um and she says why is this next to the toilet i said well that's a toilet brush and clearly it belongs next to the toilet and she looked at me and she said no this is a pot scrubber please tell me you did not use this on the toilet and i said Clearly, I did use that on the toilet because it is a toilet brush. She says, no, that's the most disgusting thing I have ever heard. I use this on the pots and pans. I said, not anymore, you don't, because now we use that on the toilet. She said, why would you do that? What's wrong with you? And I said, listen, I know what I was doing and I did it on purpose. That is now a toilet bowl brush and that's what it will be forever. I believe that brush is still in our bathroom, by the way, as a point to my wife. 
And, and as I remember that story and I talk about that and I think about it, it occurred to me, what if I had responded to my wife instead of with cutting witty humor, what if I had been genuine and honest and admitted that I had made a mistake? What if instead that was the norm within my house? As I had that thought, something else crept into my brain rather quickly. And it was this thought. No, I can't do that. I can't admit I was wrong. I can't, I can't let her win. Because if I do that, she'll smell blood in the water and I will never hear the end of it. I am a man. I am the man of the house. I can never be wrong. As I never am. Yes, I am. All the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> And then it occurred to me right after that, how sad is it that in my own home, in front of my own wife, I am too scared to be vulnerable and humble with the woman that I love so dearly, that my pride would take over so much in my own heart that in front of her, I can't show her that I've made a mistake or that there's something wrong. That scared me. Jonathan's attitude and his heart was that his kingdom was temporary and existed for God's glory. His kingdom, his rights, his expectations were all replaceable by and for God's kingdom. Jonathan understood that a life of worship is grown in the soil of humility. How can I stand here and say that mine is a life of worship and yet ignore the prideful weeds that compromise the soil that a life of worship must be rooted in? We must cut out the pride our lives are surrounded by in order to truly take hold of the life of worship that we are striving for. Because just like a weed, when ignored and not dealt with, Pride will always grow faster, spread wider, and reproduce its vile nature quicker than a plant can bear good fruit. Its nature is to rob the soil of its ability to support the growth of that which is good until only the weed is left and the plant once meant to bring life is simply unable to produce anything of value. So Jonathan and David concoct a plan and Jonathan says to David, listen, this is how it's going to work. The night after tomorrow, once I've figured out my father's intentions, I will come and let you know. I want you to hide out in this field beyond this rock. I'll come out here with a bow and arrow and a servant boy will come out and I'll shoot an arrow. If I tell the servant boy to go get it and I say it's right next to you, that means it's safe and you can come back. But if I tell him to keep going and that it's gone beyond him, then that means it's not safe. My father does intend to harm you and you must go in peace with God. And so the plan was laid out and we pick up in verse 24. So David hid in the field and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Picture this. 
Saul sitting at a large banquet table. It's one of those huge rectangle tables that you see in the movies that knights and kings all sit around. Not the round table, big, long, square, rectangular one thing. And Saul is over here on this end with a wall behind him because he doesn't trust anyone. And he's sitting in his usual seat. And then you have lining the table, all the people that are important to him and his palace. And then at the very opposite end is Jonathan of this big, long table. Get ready for the most awkward dinner conversation ever to occur. Here it comes. So Jonathan and and, uh, Saul are sitting there. And finally, Saul's had enough. One day's gone by and he let it slide because he figured David was unclean. But finally... It's gotten too much for him. And Saul slams his silverware down on the table. And he looks across at his son, Jonathan. Hey, why hasn't the son of Jesse eaten with us either today or yesterday? And he says that to him. And everything on the table stops, except for one awkward guy still carving into his plate as he looks at Saul and then over at Jonathan. And you just hear his knife scraping. And then Jonathan's sitting at the other end, and he takes a deep breath in, and he thinks to himself, this is it. He gently sets his silverware down, grabs his napkin, wipes his face, sets it on the table next to his silverware, takes in a deep breath, clears his throat, and says this. Jonathan answered, Uh, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. Jonathan chose his words very wisely. Jonathan is sitting at the edge of the table And as he replies to his father, he chooses a couple key words. He says this, um, David uh, was approached by his brothers and they were making a sacrifice on behalf of his whole clan. So David came to me and he begged me that he might be able to flee to his hometown and get away from here so that he could not have to be here with us, um, but rather escape away to see his brothers. And Jonathan is using words like flee, escape, get away, run purposely for two reasons. To expose his father's true emotions because if his dad is really angry, using words like flee, escape, and get away are going to bring that right to the surface. The other side of that coin is this. If Saul does get angry, Jonathan's offered himself some anonymity. Because with this excuse, he's able to look and say, listen, I had no idea you were angry. According to us, you had promised you would never harm David. So why shouldn't I let him not be here? So Jonathan gives his excuse. Awkward guy is sitting there and he has now put his fork and knife down and he's beginning to hunch down in his seat. And then Saul is sitting over here. And as Jonathan is talking, the anger is burning. He's taken his knife and he's begun to carve horrible words into the side of the table as Jonathan is talking. And he's finally had enough. And Saul and his anger and his jealousy bubble up to the surface. And this is how Saul responds. 
Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. I'm going to warn you. It's about to get PG-13 in here. Because this is what Saul is saying. Loosely translated. You little bastard, I'm ashamed of everything you are. You are no longer my son. Your mother was a whore. You're a mistake, a waste of air, and a failure of a son. I will never let you have what I have. Now bring your friend here so I can kill him. Here's what's interesting. Saul says something absolutely horrible about Jonathan's mother and then says, how dare you ashamed that lady? She's lovely. He's Saul, whatever. What are you going to do? Verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. One would think that by now we had learned to keep sharp objects away from Saul's reach. Apparently, we're still learning that lesson. So Saul is at the edge of his table. Jonathan's had enough. He says, why would you mean to harm him? What has he done to you? And Saul grabs a spear and hurls it at Jonathan because now Jonathan and David are essentially the same person and they now both have to go in his eyes. So Jonathan gets up from the table and in his fierce anger, he is so upset, he doesn't even eat that entire day. The next day he goes out in the field at the appropriate time when he was supposed to meet David. And he brings his servant boy with him. And he brings an arrow and a bow. And he shoots the arrow out into the field and tells the boy to go get it. And the boy runs after it. And as the boy is coming to the arrow, the boy hears Jonathan say this. I believe it's just beyond you. And the boy looks at Jonathan and he looks at the arrow Got it. And he picks up the arrow and he runs it back to Jonathan and Jonathan says, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Here's my bow. Take that and the arrow back to the palace. I'll meet you later. And we pick up at verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. The gravity of the situation, the weight of all that Jonathan are setting aside in light of God's plan, all bubble up to the surface in what they would look at as their last chance and moments together as friends. David and Jonathan come to one another. And David bows down three times in a sign of gratitude and humility. You have to imagine the past couple of days have been absolutely torturous for him. He had been hiding in that field by that stone, and that's after days of running and ducking from Saul. He's still in the clothes that he left and escaped his own home with. He hasn't had much food. He hasn't had much water. He has definitely not had sleep. He's been hiding that behind that rock, 
And you can imagine the questions racing through his mind. Am I right about Saul? Is Jonathan right? Am I overreacting? Does Jonathan know yet? Is he okay? Does Saul know about our plan? Has he killed my friend? Will I find out if Jonathan has been harmed? Will he keep his word or go back on it like his dad did? And when David and Jonathan finally came together and David learns the truth that his worst suspicions are true, he is overcome with emotion and falls to the ground bowing before his dearest and closest friend. And they embrace one another and kiss each other in a way that reflects their deep, sincere friendship in a way that was culturally common to them. It was in no way romantically significant, but it was extremely significant as a sign of depth and sincerity of friendship. As we close our time together this morning, my question is this. In this year of worship, what are our lives rooted in? If humility is what a life of worship is cultivated in, how is that evident in your life? Pride is sneaky and often hidden and usually masquerades itself as something else. All the time we say, no, God, I'm sorry, I'm too busy for you this morning. I'm going to have to get with you later. God, no, we've got too much going on this weekend. We can't go to worship to spend time with you. No, God, I have a right to be angry at her because of what she did to me. She should know better, and that's what gives me the right to be angry. No, what you have is pride. God, I'm too busy. No, God, you're too prideful. God, I don't have time. We've got too much going on this weekend. No, you've got pride going on this weekend. Because when we truly take humility into account, count ourselves as nothing and God as everything, then we truly grasp hold of what a life of worship is cultivated in. What would our lives, this church, and our world look like if we took the attitude of Jonathan and said, God, it doesn't matter who I am, what I do, or what this world tells me I deserve, because I would set it all aside so that your name might be glorified. Jonathan laid down his worldly kingdom for the sake of God's glory. He set aside all that was owed to him so that God's name might be made famous. Will you lay down your kingdom for the sake of God's glory.